Hey everyone, you're listening to Beyond Prisons, a podcast on incarceration and the abolition movement. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Nam Sonnenstein, and today I'm eager to share the next installment in our Creative Interventions series, where we explore this fantastic and practical toolkit for stopping interpersonal violence and speak with some of the people whose organizing efforts directly informed it. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, maybe pause this episode and go listen to the first one we published in the series, where we spoke with Mimi Kim and Rachel Herzing about what the Creative Interventions Toolkit is, where it came from, and how it differs from other approaches to intervening in violence and harm. Before I tell you about what we have in store today, a humble request. If you like the work we do at Beyond Prisons, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation of any amount at beyond-prisons.com donate. Your donations help us keep the show going and support all the work involved in creating these episodes, from booking to developing the questions, doing the interviews, editing, paying for the podcast and web hosting, all of it. So if the show has been important to you over the years, please consider giving back with a contribution at beyond-prisons.com slash donate. So this time around, I'm speaking with Mimi and Shira Hassan about the basics of interpersonal violence as outlined in the Creative Interventions Toolkit. If you've got the toolkit at home, which you can purchase from AK Press or access for free at creative-interventions.org, We're touching on some of the topics in section two, some basics everyone should know. There's a lot more in this section than we get to in the episode, so I highly suggest checking it out. After Shira tells us a bit about her work, including a follow-up workbook that she and Mariam Kaba created to build upon the Creative Interventions Toolkit, she and Mimi share what the term interpersonal violence means to them and what it can look like. They explain why it's important to assess power dynamics when determining if an intervention should be attempted, and how we can recognize how interpersonal violence impacts people other than those most involved. The release of this episode coincides with the publication of a new workbook companion for the CI Toolkit, which features useful and practical worksheets and tools. The CI workbook was just released through AK Press. A Google Doc version of the workbook, which you can use to adapt to your own situation of harm, is available for free at creative-interventions.org. You can find links to further resources in the episode notes, including Shira's amazing new anthology, Saving Our Own Lives, a liberatory practice of harm reduction, which is available for pre-order now and comes out on October 4th from Haymarket Books. I highly recommend you check that out and support Shira's work however you can. Shira Hassan has trained and spoken nationally on the sex trade, harm reduction, self-injury, healing justice, and transformative justice. Currently working as a fellow at Interrupting Criminalization, Shira runs the Help Desk. The Help Desk offers supportive thought partnership to individuals and groups working to interrupt crises and violence without the police. Along with Mariam Kaba, she's the co-author of Fumbling Towards Repair, a workbook for community accountability facilitators, and the author of Saving Our Own Lives, a liberatory practice of harm reduction. Mimi Kim is the co-founder of Creative Interventions and a co-founder of Insight. She has been a longtime activist, advocate, and researcher challenging gender-based violence at its intersection with state violence and creating community accountability, transformative justice, and other community-based alternatives to criminalization. 
As a second-generation Korean-American, she locates her political work in global solidarity with feminist anti-imperialist struggles, seeking not only the end of oppression, but of the creation of liberation here and now. Her recent publications include 2020's The Carceral Creep and 2018's From Carceral Feminism to Transformative Justice. She's currently working on The Chat Project, a non-law enforcement restorative justice project addressing domestic and sexual violence in Contra Costa County, California. Mimi and Shira are also partnering on a reboot of the storytelling and organizing project, also known as STOP, featuring stories of everyday people creatively and collectively ending violence. Stay tuned. All right, that's it for now. You can find links to the CI website and toolkit, as well as other resources in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening, and here is my conversation with Mimi Kim and Shira Hassan. All right. Well, thank you both uh, so much for joining us. Thank you, Mimi, for coming back and talking to us again about the toolkit. Um, Shira, since you're our newer guest here today, I was wondering if we could just kick it off by having you talk a little bit about yourself and the work that you've been involved in and just kind of give people a sense of, of where you're coming at this from. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I love talking about the Creative Interventions Toolkit and everything that it gave me. Um, so I'm super excited to do that. And um, I think, I guess, um, important things about me is that when I started trying to figure out how to address violence without using state systems and social services, it was because I was part of a community of young people, of people who were using drugs, of people who were trading sex for money, either for survival or uh, for other reasons. And there was literally no option for us. We could not go to the police. And the, if anything, the police were often causing violence and harm in our lives, both interpersonally and systemically, meaning, um, you know, cops are kind of creepy stalkers, um, especially of people in the sex trade, especially of young people in the sex trade. And so um, there really just wasn't any options. And I think, um, even in social service providers, even within anti-violence, within the anti-violence world, most people viewed the, the solution to harm that was happening in our lives as us stopping sex work rather than actually transforming whatever harm was happening around us. So when I first, I guess, became a quote-unquote practitioner of this, it was in the basic sense of the word, which was we need to figure out how to address harm and violence on our own because there's literally no one here to help us. And if, if we don't, if it's not us, then literally who? And so um, we weren't we, we didn't call it transformative justice. We didn't call it community accountability. Um, we didn't even know that it was a practice until um, 
I very slowly started meeting other people like Mimi and folks from Insight, uh, women, and women of color and trans people of color against violence, and started um, getting more connected to community, um, like with Mariam Kaba, where we realized like, oh, more people are trying to figure this out. Um, and so, so yeah, so then, so then we sort of realized, oh, we are practitioners of a thing, you know, um, this is an actual thing. And so that's, that's it. So I feel like mostly mm -hmm. I'm known around harm reduction. I feel like I'm more likely to be known as like a hooker who gives good workshop than I am to really be known for anything else. And then um, because I've started trying to figure this out in my late teens and early 20s and then started writing things down with Mariam and trying to develop a practice and then starting just practice, I think um, I think some of that has started to make its way out into the world. You mentioned Mariam Kaba, and Mimi pointed out when we were getting on today that some of the work you two have done together, such as the Fumbling Towards Repair workbook, which we'll link to in the episode description, builds off of the Creative Interventions Toolkit. Did you want to discuss that work a little bit? Fumbling Towards Repair is a workbook for community accountability facilitators. And um, we started writing it in 2017, 2018. It came out in 2019. And then I think, you know, people, um, so many people in 2020 were actively looking for resources. And so, mm -hmm. um, more people started knowing it. And when, when we wrote it, um, we wrote it for people so that it's not, so that it isn't a one-on-one, like it is not geared towards anyone who's entering the work for the first time, even though I think it can be useful um, to people before they begin. I, you know, it's really designed with people who are practitioners in mind. And that's for a few reasons. The most important one, especially for this conversation, is because Creative Interventions did such an incredible job giving us so many tools and resources. And so when we wrote Fumbling, we had already trained thousands of people through just practice in 101 work. And we had also already been using the Creative Interventions Toolkit for years and years. And so what we really wanted was to create some sort of accompanying guide for people who were using the toolkit, who had come to just practice and who needed sort of like a workbook, almost like a journal style um, resource that could be an accompanying tool uh, that folks could use. And so, we hoped, and I, I think it has happened, at least from what I've heard, that, you know, if you're picking up fumbling, you're doing so because you've already read or already used the Creative Interventions Toolkit, because it's foundational. Like, you can't actually do, I think, any part of this work well 
without having a relationship with the Creative Interventions Toolkit. To set the stage for the conversation we're going to have today, like I was telling you two before, on the last episode, we walked through the history of creative interventions and where this kind of work came from, the kind of organizing that you've all been involved in. And today we wanted to start easing into the concepts and get on the same page about some of the terminology used in the toolkit. I wanted to start with interpersonal violence. What do we mean when we use that term? What forms does it take? It's a term that I think feels familiar to many of us, but I wanted to hear your thoughts about what it encompasses for the purposes of the toolkit. As you can see, I think a lot of us come in with different entry points into the work that we're doing collectively. And um, I know that I entered looking at a lot of situations that we might describe as gender-based violence. Um, I think the the term gender then is complicated. And so for some people, gender-based violence always meant violence against uh, cisgendered girls and women. Um, Generally, the assumption was violence that was committed by cisgendered men um, against uh, women and girls. And while that does describe a lot of the kinds of violent situations of violence, I think that I've come across, I hear about, that, that do get addressed the toolkit, Gender-based violence in and of, in and of itself is people different ways. So um, I think if we think about sexual violence, if we think about domestic violence, what some people call intimate um, partner violence. All of these words point to something that people have kind of varied ideas about what they mean. Um, they might be something very specific about violence that they've experienced. Um, or that they've been um, involved in or maybe even caused. Um, but we really ended up addressing so many kinds of violence that I think sometimes we, we went to the word interpersonal so that we did not leave out the kinds of violences that people um, were actually facing and the many kinds of experiences. For a lot of people, they're looking specifically at things that they would describe as sexual violence. We know there's like of sometimes you can't draw the line between sexual violence and violence that happens within families, but also within intimate partner relationships. Um, some people don't like inter, you know, like to use the word domestic violence because it just feels more familiar, and others say that doesn't describe my situation. And I think that um, I think what we find, and when we try to define any of these terms, is it's important to do. And at the same time, they're always incomplete ways that people actually experience their own sets of violence. So. Um, what I really like, I think, about the work that we do in solidarity with you know, uh, with each other, um, and certainly, Shira, thank you so much for coming on board as somebody who I feel like we've been in partnership for so long um, on, on these very questions. A lot of what we do is kind of unpack the words. So the question you ask is a, a huge one. Interpersonal violence is a huge category and some, in some ways could be even meaningless to some people. But um, we didn't, sometimes we just say that because then it's more inclusive of the the types of violences that people might experience in their interpersonal lives um, with family and friendships and households. Um, You know, we do get a lot of situations in in workplaces. I don't think that's necessarily what we had in mind at the beginning, but there are interpersonal forms of violence and sometimes domestic violence and sexual violence that happen within workplaces within our um, social justice organizations, 
within um, mutual aid hubs, you know, violence is everywhere. And, um, and there's violence by the state. I think we tend to make some distinctions because people didn't think about violence from the state, but what we know and why we're doing this work is we know how intimately um, involved um, intersecting violence by the state um, is with uh, violence that might be experienced in a more interpersonal way. So that was kind of a long rambling answer to a question that's pretty broad, but I think I also wanted to get into some of, I know some of the things that I do when I'm trying to unpack language. And also some people don't use this language at all, or even the use of the word interpersonal or gender, even the word gender for some people is off-putting and it feels academic. It feels like too political. It doesn't feel accessible. So um, a lot of what we want to do is make it kind of generic, but also have ways like to tell stories that that remind people that we're talking about all of these levels of violence and, the, and we can use the words you use. I think that the work that um, we've really focused on in just practice, especially in the beginning when um, the Creative Interventions Toolkit was most alive for us um, was, you know, the, we really wanted to focus on not only the kinds of violence that most directly affected us, but also the kinds of violence that people were sort of like most challenged to solve without state systems and policing. And so for us, that was really specific to sexual violence, relationship Mm -hmm. violence, um, and intimate partner violence. And so the work that we've done has really specifically um, been been sort of, I would say less broadened out because First of all, we really wanted to solve for X. Like we really wanted to be like, how do we actively end sexual violence today? Like what are we doing right now? And so we named it um, really clearly because we wanted to figure out and keep working on the problems that really deeply affected us. And I think the other reason is because we thought this is, something I think that's a maybe a, a myth or a little known truth about um, the early days of some of this community accountability work and thinking is that so many of us where are, uh, well, all of us are survivors ourselves. And then most of us worked either as frontline workers in shelters or on hotlines as volunteers or in rape crisis centers as volunteers. And we just consistently saw survivors not get their needs met. And so the work of solving sort of for intimate partner harm and violence to me is also as broad as it is, it's also very specific and importantly specific. Um, And I think what people maybe 
maybe it's, it's, it's easy to miss is just how many forms of violence are involved in sexual violence, how many forms of violence are involved in intimate partner violence. And so then things sort of get broad. I also think if uh, people who are listening to this are considering using the toolkit and doing some work to interrupt violence, that what they one of the first things they do other than find a team so that they're not alone in it and um, you know think through some of the really critical steps that the toolkit asks you to consider um, but I also think one of the things is to define what violence means to you and how your group of practitioners or people who you're going to start working with to figure out solutions to violence in your community or in um, your neighborhood, how you would define that. Because I think because there are so many levels and layers of harm, it is actually important to name it and be specific so that we all know what we're talking about, if, if, if not largely, then at least among the people who are working on it together. You know, just that very question about what kind of harm we're talking about asks us to go broad, um, and but also very specific. I, I uh, agree with, you know, Shira and, and you bringing out, like, how this came up for some of us in a more personal way is, yeah, they, there, there were specific situations of harm, and they did tend to be um, sexual forms of harm and um, uh, relationship forms of harm that we were facing or people I knew, you know, intimately were facing, where... Uh, as somebody who was also coming out of a working at a shelter, that I was very aware that the answers that we had for that kind of violence was to separate, to go to a shelter, to call the police, um, to use the kind of social services that we had developed. And they just really didn't fit. Even, even if we we're doing that work and telling other people to do that, it wasn't what we wanted to choose ourselves. And then we had this whole arena of like wanting to explore ways in which we wanted to resolve um, very real, very painful and very complicated forms of harm, um, but not using state system and not using the kind, even the kind of services that we might've been working at. And so I agree that you know, people are still facing that now. This, this might be something I was facing um, back two decades ago, but this is still the situation for so many people. And that um, it is really specific forms of harm that we had to start naming and identifying. Um, and so some of what we ask people to explore is to go beyond even those categories and say, what, what specifically happened to you? How would you name that? Because a lot of times also we see people say, oh, they just use sexual violence and everybody has you know, a picture comes up for them. And it might not at all be what somebody faced. Um, I know that the, the various forms, like it's emotional, it's isolation, it's threats to call the police. It's All of these things are very much embedded into things that very rarely look like a simple, the kind of simple physical violence that we, we tend to think about. You know, one of the basics here, uh, it, it reads in the book, and if anyone is looking at the toolkit, this is on page 77, 
Although violence comes in many forms and in many situations, violence is often used as a way for one person or one group to have power and control over another. We may think that violence is about anger, passion, or loss of control, but you actually find that interpersonal violence is about many other things. Um, can you talk about that a little bit and, and, and sort of the role of power and, and how we can have a power analysis when we're, when we're thinking about intervening in a situation? I do think that this is where um, the, the feminist anti-violence movement that we're also very critical of in, in terms of frameworks and strategies has, did, did start noticing that things was like, what we said, what crime of passion, um, you know, sexual assault happened because this person just couldn't control themselves, that that is still a narrative. I mean, if we, I think if we look, still look at uh, uh, the media and, um, you know, our favorite TV shows, and it's, st it's still a narrative that people follow and believe in. But that um, if you look underlying and you ask some questions like, who, who benefits? Who started it? Who seen, who's the one that's scared? And those are some of the questions that also come up later on in the toolkit that were really informed by um, the Northwest Network. Um, that that really came up with some really great questions about thinking about the actual dynamics underlying violence, the ways in which um, people would use kind of systems of racism, of patriarchy, and whatever to actually justify or maintain um, the ways in which they would try to control another person using violence that looked like you might name, oh, I was just mad about this, I was having a bad day, I couldn't control myself, um, this is because I love you, all the various ways in which people justify and might even, even believe um, what their violence comes from, that, that it's really important to look at underlying power dynamics um, to understand the actual impact of violence of one person or another, and also to help understand how you're going to name that violence and what your options are for trying to address that violence. Sometimes it's just through something that might look like escape. And sometimes it, I mean, what we're hoping for and what we're working towards is to actually look at understanding and transforming those forms of violence, not only just for the survivor of that violence, but also for our whole social network that looks at it a certain way and for, um, people who are more responsible for harm or cause harm to have a different understanding of what liberation looks like for them as well, if we look at um, these systems of violence. So I hope that answered your question. There's a, a couple of situations that it's really important to not use community accountability as a um, mm. process itself because the power dynamics may be too overwhelming um, and I think there's actually I have a long list of times where it doesn't make sense to use community accountability as a process as opposed to sort of transformative justice practices more broadly um, there's many different examples that we've all used historically about ways to interrupt violence that may not be a long-term process and so i think one you know one example of that may be for example um is if the person who caused harm 
or who um, if if the person who is um, preying on another is a police officer, for example. Um, the power dynamic is too great, and I don't believe that community accountability is a good strategy in them in that case. I think another example for me, although I think there's been I think I think you can prove me wrong on this, but I do really believe that you can't use a community accountability process effectively with your boss or manager or executive director. Mm -hmm. um, I have had um, some luck using transformative justice strategies with, say, for example, um, um, someone who is causing repeated harm, who does have a lot of power, like in the example of a pimp or something like that, but not as a process. And so I, I want to, the reason I'm like getting granular is because I think that doing a power map and assessing risk and harm and thinking through um, the kinds of power that one person maybe has over another is also important to figuring out if a process is even possible and if it isn't possible what other kind of intervention would you do um, because we have actually as a community been developing strategies to respond to and intervene on violence for generations because so many people and so many families have not actually had access to police or social services or state systems ever and so we still we don't ignore violence just because a social worker isn't involved in solving it right so mm -hmm. i think it's also important to like thoroughly consider power before you even start i wanted to talk about how interpersonal violence impacts people beyond those who are immediately involved Starting on page 82 of the toolkit, there's a discussion of how violence can hurt survivors versus how it can hurt the people doing the harm versus how it can hurt children, friends, and family. How are people impacted differently by harm? And how does this factor into how we think about an intervention? You know, I want to answer that a couple of different ways. I mean, in one way, I just think about how I got into this was just seeing how basically lies, families, organizations, <laughs> movements got destroyed um, because of art, because of, and a lot of this is sexual harm, um, that people didn't know how to address it. Um, people who had power, you know, whether it was a power within a family situation or power within, and it's true, social justice organizations were just never confronted with this. Like people rose, they did not know what to do. They had a lot of myths around sexual violence, but also didn't want to go to the cops, didn't want to do something like that. And, and, and basically what I saw happen over and over again was that survivors of violence were driven out of families, were driven out of organizations. Um, and left as kind of like casualties that nobody talked about, nobody wanted to address, nobody knew what to do with. And then so then just violence kept 
happening. Um, people who had been perpetrating violence, people didn't know what to do. So they go from one place to another, they go from one relationship to another, they go to one organization after another, basically being told that people don't know how to deal with this, so you can just keep on doing whatever you're doing. I mean, people might think that's a, a different situation right now with call-out culture and so on, but but I think we have a million examples where this continues to happen. And you can just look to see, where, had they, had they been survivors of violence? Probably, you know, you can go intergenerationally and know that this is something that's continued. Um, you can, because so many of us have faced uh, violence in our own families. I think we have many examples of how we ourselves mm -hmm. uh, have been carried trauma, um, had relationships cut off, or really just reduced the potential of those relationships to people who have been harmed um, many times ourselves. Um, and those just those ways in which we just think this is life, but it's actually really shaped um, our, our ability to be full people. It's, it causes deep depression, it causes suicide, it causes, it, there's so many impacts of violence, not only on the people that are direct survivors, but families who then lose family members. Um, uh, children who not only are violated, but witness violence that never gets addressed in a healthy way right. by a family. And what are you carrying in terms of messages around how you talk or don't talk about violence, what you get to get away with, who cared about you to even address it, the, ca the capacity and capability of adults to actually even address harm, much less create cultures that can prevent harm in the first place. So there's, you know, when we just look at all the mass shootings now, and if you just want to even use that as an example, how many people come from families where there was deep um, histories, not only of gender-based violence and domestic violence, but also oftentimes violence of war, of occupation, of forced migration, and many other things that are just these kinds of interlocking, interrelated forms of violence that continue and are per perpetuated that never get addressed. So, you know, I mean, uh, we can go roll my yeah, family, but but they're they're so linked, and you know, I'm somebody. As many of us are, are from countries that are war torn and you know still are occupied um, by Western military. Um, that we, these are all deeply, deeply uh, interlocking forms of violence that impact so many of us.